It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you, Marcy. What she wouldn't want me to tell you is that during her times of personal worship this week, Marcy turned to the piano and just that came out and wrote this song. And she wanted to share it with you today. So I um, thought that was awesome. Yeah. I also want to mention, in case I forget at the very end, that uh, there's going to be a slideshow with some pictures and different things. And uh, it seems easy, but it wasn't. And, that's be- and, I, and I can tell you that because this guy over here, Ryan Ryder, he is the guy that's always creeping around with the camera taking pictures of you. Uh, he did an awesome job, so just thanks for him, too. I want to start with a statement, and then I'll unpack it as we go. And it's just simply this. We are an ever-changing people worshiping a never-changing God. I want to say it again. We are an ever-changing people worshiping a never-changing God. And that simple fact has been the spark of fiery conflict in the history of the church time and time again. Let me unpack the statement a bit more. That, that he is never-changing means that the source of our worship and the story it tells, those are the first two weeks of our series, The source of our worship is the glory of God. The story that it tells is the gospel story. Those two things, they don't change. For all time, this is the worship of God because he is ultimately and always the source. But one thing that does change is the setting of worship because we are an ever-changing people. And by that, I mean that who we are is in so many ways conditioned by our culture by our geography, the time in which we live, our upbringing, our experiences. And so what that ought to help us realize that when we say we are an ever-changing people worshiping a never-changing God, it ought to help us expect and anticipate and in fact position our lives to expect that the setting of every new generation's worship will be slightly different. And I'll explain that setting, what I mean by that in a moment, but... Instead of anticipating general, uh, generational changes, what has typically happened, and, and we'll see this pattern emerge as we go back through time, is instead of being the cheerleaders and the champions for the next generation, the ones who have had the life experience and perhaps the most qualified to offer wisdom and counsel and mentorship, instead become the critics and the rivals of this new generation. Why is that, do you think? Well, it's because change is a threat, is it not? Change is a threat to us, and in our worship, change is a threat to maybe the way we grew up worshiping God. It's a threat to the continuation of the sacred things that led me to Christ in the first place. It's a a threat to the feeling that I'm at home in my own church, and I'm familiar with its people and its aesthetic and its music, it's a threat to my personality, my preferences, partialities, and these are all valid, actually very valid concerns. They're they're things that in fact all of us at some point either have or will confront in our lives because we're an ever-changing people and the setting of worship, though the expression of worship throughout the ages changes. And so I cannot replace or really help you with that feeling of loss Um, We all have to kind of expect that this is going to be the case with every generation. But what I can do is offer you another perspective. 
And one thing I hope you'll discover today is that change, though it may feel like a threat to your immediate context, is actually only a natural consequence of the fact that God has designed us to be, one generation after another, a changing people and commending the works of the Lord to the neck, to each other. And so, when we have a bigger picture, when we meditate on the glory of God, the source of our worship, our, our vision comes from, goes from right up in front of our faces, you know, what's here and now in our bubble, in our world, to the broader picture of what God is doing through the ages. And that's what I want to turn to Psalm 145 to see. It's a song of praise by David, and it says this, I will extol you, my God and King. And bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness They, that is the generations, shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And that kingdom, he says, is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. And I want to pause there and and just say, David here is meditating on the glory of God, and and as I described earlier, he he starts with what's right in front of him. I will praise, I will bless, I will extol, and as he meditates on the glory of God, what happens is he realizes, wow, what I do in this life really doesn't just affect me. It affects the next generation, because one generation will commend God's works to the next, he says, and and he says it's an everlasting kingdom, and it will last, uh, his dominion will be for all generations. And so there's a sense in which the same thing should be true for us as we meditate on God. uh, We should be able to praise him for more than just what's right in front of us and, and, and pass it on from one generation to the next until in heaven, the picture of heaven that we've studied already this series is that all generations from all time will worship together on the glassy sea, worshiping the same Jesus to the same song. And when you think of the perfected glory of heaven, I was reflecting on this this week. You know, I can only imagine what must go through Jesus' mind when he stands in our 11 a.m. service. With the backdrop of heavenly worship, perfected beings, angels, praising him continuously. And he comes and he stands in our 11 a.m. service and he would have every right he alone would have the insight and the, and the, the correct evaluation to say, oh, let me now, let me tell you. He'd come up to me after the service and he'll come up and say, let me tell you all the things you did wrong. Because, I mean, against the backdrop of heaven, well, our worship is imperfect. It's broken. But he doesn't criticize that, does he? he no, he rejoices, he says. He rejoices in the midst of his praising people. He rejoices just to see his children praising and worshiping him. And we should do the same. I want to meditate just for a little bit on this idea that we are an ever-changing people worshiping an ever-changing God. As David says, one generation commends your work to the next. That means what we do here, it's a flash in the pan, you know, and then what we've done, we then hand down to those who follow us. 
And so he's telling us, you know, there's a, there's a, a healthy and, and wonderful habit that Christians develop, and that's as you live your life, you become less and less a consumer and more and more of a, a, an imparter of the, of the things of God that you have learned, the experiences that you've had, and how they may have bearing on the future. And so uh, years ago, I became really fascinated by this particular book that was on my grandmother's shelf. It was entitled, A History of the Brasington Family in the United States. And I opened it to find out that um, on a typewriter and through a rotary phone, probably my great aunt uh, in 1958 published this book of a genealogy of my family dating back to the first ancestor in the United States. He was born in 1806. His name was William Figuars Brasington. I'd show you a picture, but I don't have one. Uh, the book does. I could have scanned it. Man, next time. He was a Baptist minister. He had, he had like 100 sons, because that's what you do in the 19th century. And one of them was named James Thomas Brasington, and he also was a Baptist minister. And I had the joy of reading in this book that there are excerpts of letters that he wrote when he was suffering and bedridden with cancer. He had a cancer on his face that he writes was extremely painful. And so his reflections on pain, his reflections on the glory of the Lord and his hope in heaven, he's commended those works of God down the line. That was my great, 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 great grandfather that first came to the United States. My great, 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 great grandfather passed it down all the way to my father who was a worship pastor. And so I want to suggest that the striking thing about our family history, the Christian family history, is that all, all of our life will really be summed up in a snapshot like it is in that book, and I know that's maybe a little bit depressing to think about. It should be humbling and actually kind of energizing, because what it means is that we can look back and we can glean from the past images of where we've come and how we've gotten to where we are. And so I want to turn to the Christian family history. I want to exhume the box of old family photos and lay them out across the dining room table. I want to sort through it like we're going to piece this together into a story. And the whole idea is that they would teach us something about our own attitude toward worship. Every generation has its contributions. As I said there, we're changing from generation to generation, and so each generation has contributions by the way, this picture here, if you can see the circle on the, on the screen there, that's the picture of Rio Vista right here. This is the stage. I didn't hear as many shocked <laughs> sounds as I thought I would from that, but are you looking at the same thing? Because that is this. <laughs> anyway, every generation has its controversies as well. And what I'm going to show you is that a lot of times they're one and the same. Their contributions become this controversy for the next generation. And so, I want to start back in the very beginning in the book that follows the four gospel books in your Bible, the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles, and it's written somewhere in the middle, early part of the uh, seventh century, uh, first century, sorry, 60 to 64 AD. And what it does is it tells us that Paul and his friends go around and they plant these churches and they start these communities of fellowship and they gather together, we learn, on Sunday mornings. It's the Lord's Day, which was a big shift for the Jewish culture. They met together with Gentiles, which was, again, a big change, a major threat to the Jewish way of life formally. And they learned to worship together on Sunday mornings. And 
inevitably what happened is heresies rose up and this really informal setting of worship, think community group, is how they first were meeting. That really informal setting became a problem because of all these heresies, all these false doctrines and claiming to be Christian that weren't. And so what they did is they said, I'm going to formalize, we need to formalize our worship services a bit because this way we'll ensure that every week we tell the full gospel story from beginning to end and it will in that sense also crowd out any heretical ideas. And so that's a practice of organizing worship services that we know today as liturgy. What you're looking at here is a fragment of the Didache. Didache is Greek for teachings, and it talks about the teachings of the 12 apostles. It's the earliest extant post-biblical reference we have to Jesus and the disciples. And so it talks about kind of their practices and habits in worship. And what we learn is that we have a, a witness to the things that were actually concurrent with and with the New Testament writers. And other people rise up. Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus, and, and several others that were notable for this time of writing in their memoirs about the worship of the early church. And so we learn from their writings that the early church's biggest challenge really revolved around theology because let's face it, if Jesus had just ascended a month ago and you and I were in a community group meeting, we'd be like, what on earth just happened? And they've got to unpack all of this. They've got the scriptures in parts, you know, and it's still coming together and, and they're still trying to really figure out what on earth is happening here and unpack this, this sort of the, the practical outworkings of the gospel that they have heard and, and witnessed. And so heresies rose up and in response, councils were formed. Church councils involved sort of elder Christians down the road a bit, experienced in their walk, who would get together for sometimes years at a time to argue together. Sounds like a lot of fun, but what they would do is they would, they would argue about these heresies. They'd say, oh my goodness, were you saying that Jesus isn't actually God? Well, wait a second. Let's go back to the scriptures. Let's go back to our eyewitness testimony and, and refute that in a sense, in a way that is biblically solid and, and, and produce from that a statement of faith about that. And so in that kind of setting, we receive and handed down from generation to generation the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedonian Creed. And then, following the patristic period, dark ages. Let's pray, no. Come on, I gotta keep it interesting here. The medieval period, it's a, a time of great artistic developments, Theological battles still continued, but what emerged was actually this new form of controversy, and it was around the aesthetics of worship, the outward, visible, and audible expressions of worship. And so we look at stained glass, and we think it's just absolutely beautiful and breathtaking. We look at this cathedral, and we say, I mean, genius. It's brilliant. It, when you walk into this cathedral, it points your eyes up. You want to look up to the greatness of God. 
But the stained glass was originally put there in part to be a witness of the gospel to the illiterate, which we know at that time was prevalent. And so they created these images in stained glass like that to portray the beauty of God's creation and the the gospel message in in different characters that they would put in the glass. And you you say, how on earth could that be controversial? Well, it was. There's a whole movement that it, that it inflamed, which was called iconoclasm, if you're you know, really interested in reading that uh, about that. You can look up that boring subject later. But the point of it is that they came, there was a whole campaign against the icons, the pictures in worship, that they thought it was a breaking of the second commandment. They would argue that it's making a graven image to worship God with this stained glass window over there. And it caused a generation of turmoil, of conflict. The music you were just listening to was Gregorian chant. It's a type of plain song that developed in the medieval times. And the reason that it came about the way it did is because the early church had a very heavy emphasis on the text. By the text, I mean the scriptures. And I think we can learn something from them. But the reason that they made their music the way they did is because now I'm going to have one simple melody. They would, they would put their one simple melody to the text of the Psalms. And they would sing that melody regularly so that it was by memory, by rote, and they passed it down by oral tradition. And this one simple melody was meant to not crowd out the words. And, and they would sing it in unison. And then in the ninth century, some rebels came along and introduced harmony. Of which this is a very simple type, the ohm sound, you know? That's going on, and then there's a melody over top of it. Complete panic. (laughs) Complete panic. Inside these cathedrals, you would have musicians that would that would harmonize with each other in, in, in just very specific ways though because only, even those that were proponents of harmony had strict, strict rules about which notes in the scale they were allowed to use. For example, the interval of a fourth or fifth if you're musical, they were okay. The third, not so much. The third was called evil. When you heard a major third in a, in a chord, it meant the devil was in the house. Okay? Now, I make light of it, but honestly, this was, a, this was a crisis like you and I have experienced possibly in the church. There are, there are things that are introduced into our worship that sometimes are shocking and, and off-putting. And for this generation, that was the major third. So, go figure. But every subsequent generation of the medieval time and following threatened the status quo in a new way. 10th and 11th century, the big threat was the addition of a third harmony voice, the octave. Later, the threat was counterpoint, which means the notes are moving sort of in, in, unis- or in harmony with each other, interacting with one another in a different way. The 13th century, the invention of the motet was scorned by that generation because it was incorporating musical ideas from that time of popular music. And it was, it was almost as if people thought that that was... That's meant for outside the church. Don't bring that, that music into the house of God. And the 
motet actually included the dreaded interval of the third. And so at this point in the church, Gregorian chant was still, even though 600 years of development has taken place by this point, Gregorian chant is still the predominant music of the church because there's an honor of the text, there's still controversy about harmonies, and then this most dreaded, exciting, and controversial invention yet came along and knocked Gregorian chant off its throne. This is called polyphony. We have multiple melodies moving in different directions and they create harmonies with one another. And it was chaotic to this generation who had only grown up singing the one simple melody. It was considered completely, in fact, blasphemous because it was crowding out the words. This is a picture of medieval sheet music and it looks like a big mess to me and I can only assume it looks like that to you too. But it's, a, it's an image of the kind of music that they were developing. At the time, notation was starting to mature a little bit because before this time, they didn't really have the kind of no notation system that we have now. So they're developing that. They're, they're making it then transferable from one congregation to another and one generation to another. So all these, all these developments are happening, but they were judged evil and there, were, there, were, there was a generation of people that were just absolutely morally, morally offended by what we might just call noise because it's just so much going on and it crowds out the text. And I think it's highly ironic that polyphony was such a big debate, such a big scandal, because it is the foundational form of every hymn that we now call sacred and traditional. Hymns like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Martin Luther here in 1512, 1517 is nailing his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door. It's a very typical Martin Luther move if you, if you read about him at all. He's, he's, a, he's kind of a, a, a kind of his own. He nails dramatically, nails his offenses to the, the Catholic Church to the door. And He's confronting the church on their power, the, the corruption, on the, the corrupt practices of worship, the spiritual just uh, muddiness. They, they, they made this worship become all about, really, you were kind of a consumer. You'd show up to church, and, uh, and, and you were a passive, contemplative participant in the back that didn't really understand all that was going on. You, the Bible wasn't even written in your language, so you couldn't really read along. And, and the music was taken care of by the professionals, the hired guns on the stage. They did all the music, and we just kind of sat back and just absorbed it all, and then we called it church. And so at this era, the golden age of the hymn set to the pipe organ becomes kind of a bit of a standard. Just listen to it because this kind of music would last a couple hundred years as the, and in some cases still is, the pinnacle of worship music. Now, another irony is that the hero of Reformed thought disagreed. He was John Calvin. And he disagreed. 
thought that the organ was, in fact, quote, the ensign of the devil. I think that's what happened. I don't, I'm not sure, but I think that's what happened. It's brilliant. So ironically, this guy, the, John Calvin, the hero of reformed thought, like we've inherited so much of our, uh, we, we owe to him so much of our theology, rich, rich theology. But, but to him, the organ was the ensign of the devil, and it was permitted in worship services in his case only because, well, uh, people really wanted it, and it's, okay, yeah, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. And so he allowed the organ to be played in church, but no other instruments were to be used, and they wanted to return to a more simplistic, uh, not return so much as just settle and become okay with the hymn set to organ. And so around this time, the dust begins to settle on, a new gen- on an old generation, aging in time, quietly going about their church business, worshiping God, considering him, contemplating him. And then... They, they said, this is good. This needs to be the music for all time. The organ, hymns, forever, that's it. Jesus himself probably sang a hymn. But then some rebel came along and ruined the whole thing. No, the rebel wasn't Jesus. The rebel was Handel who wrote this piece. It's part of his Messiah, this massive work of art. It was a 259-page score that he wrote in 24 days. I'm not talking just the choir part that you're hearing. I'm, I'm talking the choral parts, you know, polyphony, and the orchestra parts, the brass parts. The, like, this guy was a genius, and yet when his Messiah premiered in Dublin in 1742, It was considered a blasphemous move in the wrong direction for church music. The whole era, in fact, of which he would become kind of an icon, not Jesus, Handel, would become kind of an icon of this Baroque movement. It was called Baroque because Baroque referred to art that was characterized by grotesque, over-exaggerating detail. And it was a term of derision and of extravagance and complexity that you know, we thought that the polyphony alone was a big problem that crowded out the words or a simple harmony. Handel just turns it up to 11 and takes it to the next level. And so I want to just review quickly what we've covered so far because I, I think you'll agree there's a pattern here. As we look through our family's history, you know, I'm, I'm no sociologist or, or, you know, psychologist or whatever, historian even, but I can't help but see a pattern emerging. Do you? Yes, yes, you do. There's a pattern emerging. And it's this, that there's, there's a pattern of kind of distrust in the Christian family. I know that sounds harsh. I don't mean it to be, but sorry. It, it's true that there's a generational distrust one to the next. And I think more than that, there's a, gener- there's a distrust of God who manages and oversees our worship from generation to generation, that he's got it under control, that handles Messiah, shocking as it was at the time, God's not off his throne. Worship will continue. In fact, it's part of this big picture that God is painting. But we're up here. We're this close to it, so we don't see it. We just see, ah, uh, who moved my cheese? 
Some get the reference. Anyway. <laughs> but when we zoom out, when we meditate on the glory of God, we can see their, their canvases. This canvas is eternal. He's been writing it since before we were here. And so the question kind of came to me this week as I was thinking about it, that I, I wonder how we as a church, capital C, the currently existing living church on earth, can commend the works of God to the next generation while also, at the same time, pushing back in moral outrage against their contributions to worship. See, each of us need to ask ourselves a hard question, and that's, am I serving to be the next generation's champion and cheerleader, or am I more like a critic and rival? It's something that all of us have to consider. You know, we're threatened by the change, and we have to consider that. The picture that you're looking at here is 18th century America. That guy is George Whitfield. He was a famous preacher. And he, like Jonathan Edwards and others, were itinerant preachers who would go and say, hey, I'm going to be on that hillside at, you know, Thursday, whatever. And, and they'd set up a tent and they'd get, draw a crowd. And these guys were just amazing speakers. They were fiery preachers. In fact, overtly and unapologetically manipulative in order to make sure you were converted to Jesus before you left. Okay? And so it was a wonderful movement, though, of awakening and revival and yet there's something conspicuously absent from this picture. And it's not a thing, actually. It's, it's a someone. It is conspicuously absent. There's a whole population of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are barred from the table, are pushed outside of Christian society, are not allowed into the church. They would suffer beatings if they attempted to sneak in the back and listen to the sermon. So, this is a picture of a slave trade vessel at sea. And what we see here is a crowded, crowded ship, right? They would cram hundreds, sometimes 700 people into this ship in the most inhumane conditions possible. There's another picture I found I wanted to show, but I felt like it was a little bit disturbing, because it was. That involved, you ever been in an MRI? How like the, the thing is right here? They made their beds that tall, and they'd stack them eight on top of each other, like that. And each person had to slide into this hole to sleep. Most inhumane conditions imaginable, and yet, there's something beautiful that comes out of it. The story goes that one of the captains of these ships was out at sea and a storm came on the boat and he was reading the Bible and he came to Jesus. He was, his eyes were opened and he was awakened in his heart. He then, over time, as he grew as a believer, repented of the slave trade and his participation in it. He wrote a memoir, in fact, about, it's basically an apology for his ignorance. And while he was on the ship, he had heard a melody. He had heard lots of melodies, no doubt, coming from the hold of the ship as these African-American people who were enslaved were singing songs of victory and hope. So he said a hymn to one of those melodies, and it's called Amazing Grace. 
And that ship captain's name was John Newton. And I, I just think it's a beautiful story of redemption, you know, something so vile and grotesque, and, and yet God redeems it somehow and puts it in the heart of a man to put the words of our greatest anthem, arguably the most well-known song on the planet, to that song, which was based on a West African sorrow chant. And so, at some point, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation happens, and African Americans are being assimilated into the culture of America, and it creates no little stir. I mean, watch any one of a thousand movies about it. What it's like culturally at this time is very tense. And so now this is, becomes an issue of a generation is, is how to dwell together in unity and harmony and, sing, and singing together and worshiping together. And the influences that they brought with them culturally were more than just their traditional songs, which, which was a great contribution, but um, they also brought with them percussion, an emphasis on drums, and an emphasis on what they called shuffles, which was, uh, uh, I'm sorry, shouts, which involved shuffling your feet and clapping. And this was a no-no, by the way. I mean, as you can imagine, it was, I mean, if handle was offensive, shuffling your feet and clapping, oh my goodness. And that was the, these were some of the things that that were integrated into the church, including the most forbidden thing, dance. Yep, uh-oh, I heard it. Yep, it's all coming off the rails, guys. So when these practices infiltrated the church, and it did feel like an invasion, they threatened the way things were, but today we consider them just normal and appropriate acts of worship. And of course, the 20th century in America was also a century of war. And this played a role in the church as well. With the Civil War not long behind, in 1914, World War I broke out, followed by World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and later the Gulf War. And by the 50s and 60s, the underlying angst of a generation of war started to come out in rather offensive and loud anti-establishment demonstrations, including in their music. And what John and Charles Wesley's hymns were to the Protestant Reformation, their rallying cry, rock and roll was to the disillusioned youth of America. Wait a minute. I like the hair. I like the hair. Car Carter would approve. Yeah. Ah, the hippies. So-called aficionados of jazz music embracing the sexual revolution and purveyors of cannabis and psychedelic drugs. Ah, what a fine generation it was. You know, crowds of people converged on the West Coast in 1967 for the Summer of Love. And on the East Coast, they gathered at a similar kind of assembly in 1969 at Woodstock. How many of you were there? Woodstock or Summer of Love, anybody? We had one in the first service or two. Oh, 
We gotta, we gotta share coffee later. I need, I need some stories, man. I need some stories. Got another one? Oh man, this is awesome. I can't wait to get coffee with you guys. So Woodstock, though, represented a nation that was kind of in turmoil and, and breaking out into a new music scene. And so it was building on the icons of Elvis and others, um, developing now even new genres of music and exploding the ones that already existed. And so the 1960s was just a rapid expansion in the music world. Bands like The Who, Pink Floyd, The Beatles and their British Invasion, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Aretha Franklin, and on and on and on and on and on the list could go. This was an age of great art and music. And, you know, new genres developed uh, all these subgenres of rock, psychedelic rock, folk rock, hard rock, roots rock, surf rock. You know, and then there's soul music and R&B music and gospel music that rolls out of this time. And so, inevitably, because we've, because we've watched this history up to this point, I think it's pretty predictable what's going to happen next. And I hate to, to lower this song, but I want, you to, I want you to review with me again. So, in the medieval time, the motet was a sacred adaptation of secular music. Offense upheaval. Do you remember earlier when we talked about the upheaval that the church went, to, went through when churches began to implement the sign of the devil as their choice accompaniment? Or when churches split, cried heresy, and condemned the generation of believers who first introduced harmony and polyphony to worship? Do you remember when Handel's Messiah was at first rejected as a degenerate, irreverent, grotesquely self-indulgent piece of blasphemous noise. Yes? Okay. If you do, then it's very predictable what would happen next. Some hippies were getting converted. He found Jesus, and he wrote about it. This guy right here, Larry Norman, he is considered to be the father of Christian rock music. And he was in some ways the impetus for what would follow the CCM industry, the Christian contemporary music industry, and all of its branches. And, uh, you know, imagine you're in 1960s, 70s worship, and this guy walks in. Right now we're like, yeah, so what? <laughs> Do you realize that there are documentaries about how offended people are when that walks in the door of the church? When by that I mean a guy with long hair and jeans. It was, it was, oh, whoa, you know, we've been praying that you guys would, that you people would come to church, but could you cut the hair? And so Larry Norman started a trend of, or started a whole movement. And it was called the Jesus Movement. He was part of the Jesus Movement. He didn't start it, but he did start some of the music that flowed out of it. And the players during that time were labeled Jesus people or Jesus freaks in less kind terms. So I need a hand if you recognize a band, okay? I'm going to say a couple. Out of the Christian music industry came a band called Second Chapter of Acts. Yeah, all right. Annie Herring, Second Chapter of Acts. I grew up listening to that music. I love it. Okay, what about Petra? Woo, we got a, we got a wow, we got a shout out. Okay. What about Striper? Love song? They're a, little, they're a little more obscure. Yeah, they're old. I got a hand in the back. Way to go. Um, were you also at Woodstock? Okay. Anyway. 
Other Christians at the time were focusing their music as they've been converted to Christianity in this Jesus movement. They're focusing their energies less on the popularization of these Christian rock songs and more on the worship music that would be sung in church. And so many of you probably remember songs like I Exalt Thee, As the Deer, He Has Made Me Glad, Seek Ye First, Rich Mullins in the late 80s wrote Awesome God. In the 70s and 80s were a time when the instruments and the culture of the Jesus people infiltrated the church. And there was an entire generation of turmoil about this. I love this laser. This and this. The drums were absolutely offensive. They, they were, that's the devil's music. And literally that was what it was referred to. And, and, and so, you know, we have a drum set in church and it represents all of these all of these bad things, you know? And again, it's a valid feeling. I mean, if you grew up in the 60s and you were one of these people that had a, a past of, of abuses and recreational drugs and, and whatever else, and you come to Jesus and you hear drums, you're taken back to that time of your rebellion, perhaps. And so it's absolutely valid. It's just that in hindsight, we look back and we go, well, wait a second, that's a big contribution to the church, wouldn't you say? In the moment, it's a threat. But when we zoom out, we kind of see the glory of God and how he's painting on this bigger canvas than any one of us. And so many cried blasphemy when the drums came into the church. And with the Jesus movement did come one, well, several, but one important lasting thing. Up until this point, church music was about looking up at the transcendent God and reflecting and contemplating his holiness, his glory, his highness, his otherness. And that's absolutely appropriate, is it not? He is high, holy, other. He is transcendent God. But he's also God with us. He's the God that tabernacled among us, that took on our nasty flesh and walked around and had a sinless life and participated in the things that we participate in. And the Jesus movement said, because so many were so radically saved from drugs and other things, they, uh, they, they were just these Jesus freaks, they, as they were called. They were so crazy excited about it. And they come into the church and they bring their instruments and, that, and the generation that, that was there before was like, just like the, the hair, you know, cut the hair and maybe not the drums. And so every generation has this moment. <laughs> my mom shared with me this story, which was very odd coming out of my mother's mouth. Um, you'll see. I'm, I referenced second chapter of Acts. Uh, one of the, there was a, two sisters and a brother that made that band. And, and one of the sisters, her name was Annie Herring. And there's apparently a story that when Annie Herring got saved, she and her friends were so excited about Jesus that they went out and got stoned. <laughs> I mean, that's, they didn't know. They didn't know any better. That's just how it was, you know? And later, they're like, oh, I'm not supposed to, okay, I, I should put that away now. Okay. They were honestly just coming to Jesus, and, you know, I just, I wonder if, if uh, we could be a little more rejoicing with those who worship the Lord and a little less... Whoa, whoa, slow down. I'm going to wrap up here in a moment, but this imminent, trans, this imminent and 
transcendent divide, God's presence with us and God's holiness and otherness, would then kind of carry over a generation later into what we call now as the worship wars. And that would be a whole other sermon to talk about in any detail, but essentially the argument of the worship wars was between contemporary and traditional music and which Jesus liked better. <laughs> which does Jesus enjoy more? The, this kind of music? or Handel's Messiah, or a motet from the medieval time, or, you know, Gregorian chant. Yes, yes, and yes, right? And so I, I'm happy to say that I think that this generation of millennials, here, some of us who've been in church a real long time arguing about it, and they're like, that's in the rear view, man. Like, we're, we're way past that argument about contemporary and traditional worship. Because it's both, it's obvious. God is transcendent, he is imminent, he's with us. Let's express it in our worship. And, and so the millennials, you know what they want? They want authenticity in their worship. They want excellence in their worship. And they want it to mean something when they worship. They want it, the music, the lyric, the message, the ethos of the whole thing to, to be meaningful. They want authenticity, they want excellence, and they want meaning, and that can be accomplished in a, a hundred different ways. And so for this generation, they're kind of going, what? Like, pick up an organ? Great. You know, guitar? Sure. You know, nose flute? I don't know. What, what's next? I don't know. And so the question becomes for this generation, as we get to present day, what will be the hot button issues? Will it be rap? Will it be EDM? If I have to explain EDM, it's not going to matter to you. Is it the lights? Is it the, the obviously auto-tuned voice? Is it the... Is it like this instrument that I don't even recognize? Like, what is that? What are these things going to evolve into? I don't know, but... We have an opportunity in this generation to commend the works of God to the next. And we only can do that by being their champions, by being their supporters that are mentors if you're elder, an elder in the faith. We're never going to get there by being a critic and a rival. It's not going to work anyway. And so, as I said at the beginning, I can't change your feelings if there's a feeling of loss during your time as a Christian. But I can offer you a new perspective, and the perspective was simply this. We're an ever-changing people in a never, worshiping a never-changing God. And from this, we need to just accept and begin to not only anticipate but plan for, purpose ourselves forward toward the next generation and say that sometime soon some rebels are going to come up here with an instrument you've never seen or lights and things that are blinding and uh, man, I don't, I don't know how I fit here anymore. And, and I just want to again remind you, and, and this is what I'll close with, is you know, God is a God that's painting on a much bigger canvas than any any one generation. And so with 
honor and respect for what's come before, but equally with anticipation and excitement for what he's going to bring. We just need to remember that we should rejoice with people who worship Jesus. It's that simple. Rejoice that this generation of people that are jumping up and down, and I don't understand their music, but man, look at them. Look at them. They're loving Jesus. So Jesus would rejoice with them, and so should we. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you've grafted us into your everlasting family, family very diverse in various ways. God, we confess that as human beings, we just, it's the only world we know what's right in front of us, this generation, my bubble, my sphere. And so we become nearsighted. And we we forget, God, so easily that there's something much bigger at play here, so much bigger canvas than just my life. And so I just pray, God, that you'd make me, make each one of my brothers and sisters here today the type of people who rejoice and celebrate with the new generations as they come, that we would be able to commend your works to them in a way that honors and lifts high the name of Christ. Do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.